Good morning. It's good to be back with you and uh, to be with you to give um, <clears throat> to go into God's Word together. And so I'm so happy that we can be together and uh, we can see what God has to say to all of us. This morning is the start of a new series of messages. It's on the Sermon on the Mount. And it has to deal with the pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of happiness. Now, it's very intriguing because this is one of the few passages where Jesus actually preaches at great extent. These are words that come directly from him. It's not somebody talking about what Jesus said. It's not somebody expanding on what Jesus said. It's not someone like the apostles who are going on to express to us new thoughts from God. But this is directly from the mouth of Christ. And so the, the, we should not underestimate its importance. God's word is important. Uh, many of you would be familiar with Matthew chapter 4, for example, when it tells us it is written, Man shall, live, uh, shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so, folks, I know in Singapore we're really into food, okay? But if we're going to be healthy, well, then we need to understand that it's more than just physical food that we need to be concerned about. It's actually the Word of God as well. We also remember Psalms 119. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. And so, if we're not just going to be concerned about knowing something that will last until the newest fashion or the newest fad shows up, then the word of God is for us. It is timeless. (coughs) And so, we want to make sure that we're in tune with God's word. In the Sermon on the Mount, God speaks into the heart and soul of people. He speaks important things, essential things that all of us need to learn and to live out in our daily lives. And one of these areas that he addresses is this whole area of personal happiness. Now, personal happiness, what is it that we're talking about here? This seems so elusive. It seems like such an idealistic kind of uh, philosophical idea. The idea of happiness, as given in the Bible, is a sense of inner peace, contentment, and satisfaction with life that is not dependent on outer circumstances. Okay, let me repeat that one more time. The happiness that we're talking about here is that inner sense of peace, contentment, and satisfaction with life that is not dependent on outer circumstances. Now, let me give you... Uh, some idea how important happiness, this whole concept of happiness is, especially to the Asian culture, all right? Now, back in California, where Effie and I grew up, <clears throat> we used to attend these wedding affairs and these wedding banquets. And, you know, they're quite elaborate. They're quite elaborate. And they usually start off with this beautiful, beautiful red invitation, you know? And you get it in the mail in a pink envelope or a red envelope, very carefully written, and it comes to your home, and you open it up, and wow, there's this beautiful red invitation, and on the outside is the symbol double happiness. And then you open it up, and it tells you the details of the invitation. All right, so we went to this wedding, and then we were pleased, and we were privileged to be a part of this thing, and then we went to the wedding banquet. Oh, oh my goodness. The bride and the groom and all their beauty and all their, you know, uh, regal uh, attire were sitting on the stage. And behind them, there was this big silk screen. And guess what? The silk screen had double happiness. And then 
We began to look, go, they started serving the cake, and before they served the cake, they showed it to everybody. Guess what was on the cake? Double happiness. You looked on your table. They had the little gifts for all the, you know, for all the guests that were coming. Guess what? The gift had imprinted on it. What? Double happiness. Do you get the message? The message was happiness was really important. And it was the wish of the guests and the wish of the bride and groom and the parents of the bride that there would be just overflowing, never-ending flow of double happiness coming to them. So I think happiness is a key in, a part of all of our psyches as Asians and as people in general. We want this sense of happiness. Some people have said, well, happiness is the, uh, these things. Some say this having material riches. Others say it is living a life on their own terms, never having to be apologetic for anything. Some people say it happiness is leaving a great legacy that future generations can build upon and expand. All those are all good, but are they great? Are these things all good? Are they the sum total of happiness? See, as great as these may be, God, our creator, gives us the true recipe for happiness. The fact of the matter is God knows that us human beings, in all of our sinfulness, we are hard to satisfy. We are hard to satisfy. For example, Proverbs 27 tells us, the eyes of man are never satisfied, are never satisfied. The story was told of that great multi-billionaire, J. Paul Getty. He owned millions and millions and billions of dollars at times when... You know, it, it, it was just fantastic. This was a century ago. He owned railroads. He owned land. He owned everything. Someone went up to him and said, Mr. Getty, how much is enough? And he looked at this person. And he said, just a little bit more, just a little bit more. And that is sometimes the reflection of our mentality, isn't it? We're not quite happy, satisfied totally. We just want a little bit more. You see? And so, man, is hard to satisfy. God knows this. And so that's why he speaks to this uh, area of happiness. So the question is, can anyone ever be truly happy? Can we ever be truly happy? Yes, but one has to be looking at the right place for the right thing. And this brings us to Jesus Christ and the Sermon on the Mount. This is why we entitled it The Pursuit of Happiness. Because if you will follow us in the next few weeks, as we go into this verse by verse, you will see that God reveals to us how we can have that kind of happiness that he wants us to have. And so we want to get started. And so we're going to go to Matthew chapter 5, starting with verses 1 and 2. Excuse my voice. I, I kind of lost it in the first service. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, you know, Jesus was the master teacher. He only had, you know, a few years with actually his disciples in a full-bore teaching ministry, but he accomplished so much. And so he gathered these people in the hills of Galilee. There's no microphones. There's no stage, no fanfare. It's just him and the crowd. And he goes up there and he says, I'm going to teach you. He's going to teach you. He's not going to get some substitute teacher. He's not going to get someone to come in and do something different or fancy. He's just going to teach us. 
And that's exactly what he does here on the Sermon on the Mount. But if we're going to get the most out of this, we have to understand a few general principles, a few general considerations. We need some basic facts to help us understand what Christ is saying. Because what we'll hear will be very different than what we are used to thinking and hearing. And this is a key thought as we move through this Sermon on the Mount. What you will hear are things that will probably blow your mind. These are things that you are not used to hearing. The things that we must understand that what we will not hear and what we will hear differs from conventional worldly wisdom. For example, you things that you won't hear. You won't hear a set of rules and regulations to keep. You know, sometimes we think that that's all the Christian faith is about. It's not the Ten Commandments. It's the 10,000 commandments, you know, that we have to keep. And we think if we just keep these, then that's it. That's all there is to it. But Jesus takes a different track. He does something different here. He doesn't give us a list of rules and regulations. He does not give us a set of familiar proverbs about peace and prosperity like so often we hear today. If you do this, man, you're guaranteed financial security and success. He doesn't do that. For example, you won't hear the familiar proverbs, work hard for great grades, go to a good school, get a good job, marry a good spouse, have good kids, make good investments, and for sure, be sure your kids follow in your footsteps, buy a good house in a good neighborhood, and big enough for you to move into. You see? That somehow, those are all good pieces of advice. They're not there. They're not there. You see, because Jesus knows there's more to this life and how to achieve happiness than just the material things. And so, what we will hear, though, are things that sometimes will sound very puzzling to us, things that will be baffling. For example, if you have your Bibles and you turn to chapter 5, verse 4, what will you see? It says, Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. Now, that is weird. That is weird. Blessed are those who mourn. Another translation would be something like this. It, it would go something like this. Blessed are those or happy are those who are sad. <laughs> now, that is baffling. That is baffling. But yet, Jesus comes right out and says it. And if you come back next week, you'll find out what all this means. But that's what he says. One preacher who was preaching on the Sermon on the Mount said this. When you hear the Sermon on the Mount, it's like Christ went into the display window of life and switched all the price tags. From our standpoint, what we thought was really unimportant and insignificant becomes priceless. And And that which was priceless now becomes Worthless. Now, wow, that is something. And so if that captures your imagination, if that, if that begins to tweak the, the, the strings in your heart and you say, you know, I've got to hear what Jesus says, then you've got to hear the Sermon on the Mount. We not only have to understand that we won't hear conventional wisdom, we also need to understand what life was like when Christ preached this sermon. For example... It's helpful for us to understand what the world was like politically. 
To the Jewish people, they were being ruled by the oppressive Roman Empire. Peace came at a very high price. This na- the nation of Israel was looking for a military savior who would lead the nation into political freedom and material prosperity. Now, does that sound familiar like such a, many of the countries that are around us today? Political freedom and material prosperity, you see? And Christ gets dropped right in the middle of this. And so, politically, these, this was the, the environment that Jesus taught in. Religiously, the people were imprisoned by a rigid system of rules and rituals. Did you know that the Pharisees believed imposed a harsh and strict code of conduct composed of 250 commands and 365 prohibitions. Unbelievable. One prohibition a day, if you want to count them, you see. And yet, they held the people hostage to this. They made the people believe that if they adhered to these rules and regulations, they would please God. The people were taught that external conduct was the way of holiness. Christ comes in and says God's standard is very different from those of the established religious leaders. In fact, you'll remember Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpassed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Okay? So you have this 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 conundrum you have this the you know opposition coming you have Jesus coming in you have the religious forces you have the political forces and Jesus walks in boom and he comes in and he says this is how you can achieve real happiness in this kind of world now we need to also understand one last thing we need to understand that this sermon is applicable to us today it's not something that was <clears throat> it was some, not something that was just relegated to the time of Jesus. Today, much of the dissatisfaction in the church is caused by the church discarding the most important for the less important. There is a lot of emphasis upon outward conformity with little attention to inward conformity to the image of Christ. True discipleship means the transformation of the heart. It means transformation of the heart. And if we forget that, it's easy for us to just fall into the trap of just looking like a believer on the outside. And that's fairly easy to do. And so what happens is that we can look like a Christian. We can talk like a Christian. We can, you know, do all the right things at the right time. But inside our heart, there is this darkness and there's this sinfulness that is diametrically opposed. Jesus comes in and he says, let's get things straight. What is important to God is the heart. It's what's on the inside and not so much what's going on on the outside. So the Sermon on the Mount is for us today. It puts the focus back on the condition of one's heart and away from just one's behavior. Okay. Now, it's our hope that we will be encouraged and challenged to face the condition of our hearts. Sometimes people don't like to come to church. I don't think it's just because of the music. I don't think it's just because of the message or the, you know, the preacher, you know, how he parts his hair, you know, whether or not he says it this way or that way. You know, I don't think it's all that. 
I don't think it's just because of the location. Although location helps, all right? But most people don't come because they know when they come, they will be challenged about what's going on in their heart. And that can be very stressful <laughs> to people, you know? They'd much rather have a set of rules and regulations. They'd rather have some kind of thing that grades them on the outside rather than on the inside. And so God, Jesus Christ, comes through on the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, look, let's put things straight. It's the heart. It's the heart. And so he moves us on to the pursuit of happiness. There's also not only a general, but we have to consider the spe- some specific considerations. We need some basic facts to better understand what Christ was saying to us about our heart. Now, let's go to verse 3. Let's go to verse 3. Look in your Bibles there in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. And it says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, some of you are sitting there and you're wondering, where does pastor get this pursuit of happiness from? Happiness isn't in here. All it says is blessed. All it says is blessed. Well, guess what? The word blessed, the Greek word for blessed there, means happy, fortunate, or blissful. It's a person whose happiness is not dependent upon outside circumstances. That's where it gets. So we can translate this, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Whoa. Oh, you mean to tell me that God's starting right off in the very beginning, and he says that if I want to be happy, I've got to be poor in spirit. Well, what does poor in spirit mean? The word poor there, the Greek word there, describes one who is totally destitute, has absolutely nothing, one who has to depend totally on another for any and all sustenance. So, so, what Christ is saying to us is I am going to be happy if I'm totally without anything and I'm totally dependent on someone else. Yes. Yes. And then he says that in in spirit, he says, he's not talking about material things. He's not saying, those of you who are broke, those of you who are in debt up to your eyeballs, those of you who don't know, you have no money in your pocket, you don't know how you're going to pay for lunch after this service. He's not saying that. He said, those who are poor in spirit, whose heart and attitude is that they are helpless and hopeless and dependent upon God. That's what he is saying. Christ teaches happy is the person who has become convinced of their own spiritual poverty. This person is conscious of his own misery and want before God. This person knows that without God, he is in a place of utter helplessness and hopelessness. You see, most people we meet don't have this attitude. Or they don't even know that they are spiritually, spiritual paupers. They don't know that. They don't know how much they really need God. But some of, all through the scriptures, there's all kinds of indications of how dependent we are upon God. All we have to do is look at James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of life with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. All we have to do is listen to Deuteronomy 8, verse 18. Remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth. 
We're dependent on God, folks. No matter how smart we think we are, no matter how lucky we think we are, we are really dependent upon God. And then listen to Psalm 62, verse 7. On God, my salvation and my glory rest. You know, we don't earn our salvation. We receive our salvation by faith. You see, God has already done all the heavy lifting. See, and we come in and we say we're putting our trust in you. Not in works, but in you. And in you, we have our salvation. Christ is saying to us that happiness comes to those who see their helplessness and dependence upon God. And so, we're sitting out here, we're hearing this. It sounds so, so different than what we're used to hearing, doesn't it? Aren't we used to hearing oftentimes... Work hard, just work, do this and do that. And with a little bit of luck, you know, everything will fall into place. That isn't what he says. He says, definitely happy is he who is poor in spirit, who sees their helplessness and dependence upon God. Now, all of this raises some questions naturally. And we can't answer all the questions, but we can answer some for example, one question is, why does Christ say our happiness starts with our acknowledging our helplessness and dependence on him? Why does he start there? Because first of all, there's three reasons I'd like to share with you. First of all, is to counteract the prevailing attitudes and actions promoted by the world. Now, whether you believe it or not, there is a philosophy, there is a thinking, there is a way of behaving and living that the world prescribes and promotes. And this basic idea of living, philosophy of living, comes right out of hell. It is one that dismisses God. It is one that tries to sideline God. It is one that tries to eliminate God out of the picture altogether. I was thinking about this in the, in the, before the service, and uh, God sort of put in my heart to go to Romans chapter 1. So there's no slide on this verse here. But in Romans chapter 1, verse 28, and in Paul's great dissertation, description of humankind, this is what he writes. He says, and just as they did not see fit, this is starting with verse 28, Romans chapter 1, verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper. Verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. You see, it's just like the world promotes this idea, this idea that if you want to make it in this world, you just have to be more evil than the next guy. <laughs> You've got to be a little more clever than him and get one step above him, you see. And so this, the chain never ends. It's just one sin after another, one evil after another. And you'll have people standing on the sideline who will applaud you and say, 
Good one. That's a great one. Oh, man, you really got them that time, you know. Now, all this kind of stuff. No, that isn't what it's about, you see. And Jesus Christ comes in and he says, I want to counteract all of these attitudes and actions that are promoted by the world. All this whole idea of self-confidence and self-will and self-actions and all of that kind of thing. He says, no, that's not, that's not our way. That's not our way to be happy. And then there's another reason is to show that we can receive mercy and grace from God. When we are humbled, when we are broken spirited before God, when we are poor in spirit for God, then that puts us in a place to receive the graces and mercies of God. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, we have this wonderful promise that is given to us. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Guess what? The person who is not poor in spirit, the person who does not believe that he is totally dependent upon God, the person who does not believe that his help comes from God, He's not going to go to God and he will not get these graces and mercies. He is totally oblivious to this. Jesus Christ comes and he says, listen, if you will heed these things, you will learn. We start here. When you're broken in spirit, you can go to God. And when you go to God, you can find the help that you need. Third one, okay, is that is to help us overcome the greatest barrier to receiving forgiveness of sin. When we... Do not see our dependence upon God. When we do not see that we need God's help, what happens is that we also don't believe that we need to be forgiven. We don't, we're not conscious of that. We don't, we don't have any, because we are our own standard. We are our own judge, jury, and executioner. And so in Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, from the New International Version, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Guess what? The person who is not poor in spirit, the person who does not see his helplessness and depends upon God, he doesn't go to God. He will not humble himself. Are you kidding me? This person will stand up and shake his fist in the hand of God and demand it. He'll say, this is my right. You need to forgive me. You need to do this. Or I have no reason to believe that what I've done needs forgiveness. That's the attitude of the person who doesn't, does not pour in spirit. You see? So all of this to say what? All of this to say that Christ comes in and he starts right off the bat. He goes right for the juggler. He goes right for the main artery. And he says, this is where we start. This is where we start with happiness. It is acknowledging our helplessness and dependence upon God. All of these things will begin to click. All of these things will begin to come into play for your life. Well, there's another question. How can you become poor in spirit on a practical daily basis? Some of us might say, okay, 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 okay. I want to be happy. I realize I have to be poor in spirit. I've got to realize that I'm helpless before God. And therefore, where can I start? Please help me start. Okay, let me help you. First of all, ask God for a new heart. Ask God for a new heart. In Psalms chapter 51, David expressed this thought so beautifully. Psalms chapter 51, verse 10. 
Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. In other words, it's asking God to do a spiritual heart transplant in each of us. Why? Because our hearts are so sick and they're so filled that they're saturated with all of the sin and evil and get back and get, uh, get even and all that kind of stuff in our heart. It needs to be replaced. Okay? It doesn't need to be just cleaned up. It needs to be totally replaced. And that's what David said. Give to me a clean heart, O Lord. So ask God. Ask God. God, you know my heart is not right. Please, replace that old heart with a new one. Secondly, be more thankful for all things and in all things. We're familiar with this, but sometimes it still eludes us, doesn't it? It doesn't quite set in or strike home. It doesn't seem to impact us as heavily as we hope it would. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20. It says, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God. It says, even our Father. A person who does not see their dependence upon God and their helplessness before God, they will not be thankful for anything. (laughs) You can buy them all the iPad. You can buy the iPad 4, the iPad 5. You can buy the iPhone 10. It doesn't matter, man. They're never going to be satisfied. They're never going to be thankful. It just perpetuates that whole independent, self-willed spirit. But you can help start yourself now by being thankful for all things. And then 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 And that tells us to be thankful in all things. Be thankful in all things. All these different circumstances of life. And so if you look at uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18, In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So, what's the problem here? The problem here is seeing our dependence upon God. How can we help ourselves see ourselves as we truly are. Ask God for a new heart. Number two, ask him, be thankful for all things and in all things. And you'll be surprised how this begins to steamroll, how this begins to pick up steam in your life. And you begin to start thinking a lot differently. You start acting a lot differently. You start seeing things a lot differently. And this is where we can start. Thankfulness has a way of lowering our level of arrogance and pride and self-sufficiency and self-will. It just does. It just does. It just does. So, as we begin to wrap this per, uh, this up, please realize that we have many more verses in front of us. There are a lot of more of blessed R's. <laughs> and I hope you'll want to come back and learn what are those other blessed R's. God's plan for happiness is very different from the world's plan. Christ points to our souls and dares us to believe that who we are on the inside matters more to God than what we do on the outside. The part of us that is seen by human eyes is less important than the part that is seen by God. All right? That's where we are headed. God's plan for happiness starts with being broken before God, setting aside our personal pride and acknowledging our dependence upon Him. I told you it was going to be different than what you're used to hearing. (laughs) And we got off to a great start. I hope that you will join us in the next few weeks as we go further and deeper into the Sermon on the Mount. Let's pray together.
Father, thank you for being bold enough, courageous enough, and actually perfect enough to address the condition of our heart. Whenever others address the condition of our hearts, we become very, very agitated. But Father, when your word confronts us, then it's like a mirror. We cannot hide from the image that's before us. So Lord, as you take us on this journey with you, through the Sermon on the Mount, Father, may we totally change. May we become better on the inside, and as a result, better on the outside. Thank you, dear Lord, for your powerful word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Shall we stand for the song of response?